Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to be with you today. Uh, folks, we've got a real treat for you. Uh, I've got a friend of mine on who has spent years in this space. Um, Phil McLemore, I don't know if you would call yourself awakened or not. I, I kind of like the moniker almost awakened. It kind of hints that there's progress to gain, but I have gotten somewhere. And it, it at least entails that maybe we have some wisdom to pass on to the audience. But uh, hello, my friend. How are you doing today? Terrific. Awesome. I wonder if you'll start us off. Just give us a a bio of yourself, some background about yourself. Let the audience know maybe how long you've been kind of playing in this, this space and um, some of the uh, some of the resume of that. You know, again, I, I recognize that uh, maybe even just starting off throwing in some of this, that all of these labels are, are not real. Um, but you've spent a lot of time in meditating and thinking and wrestling with, with spiritual things. And I'd like the audience to get a feel for you before we dive into some questions. Oh, sure. I grew up Catholic, uh, actually went to an all-male Catholic high school. When I graduated from high school in 68 and started college, uh, Catholicism just didn't seem to be very relevant, and it didn't seem to be working for me in any substantive way. So I spent, oh, probably two years or more just going to every conceivable church. I mean, I would stop at tent meetings. I don't see those much anymore, but back then there used to be a lot of tents on the side and there'd be these preachers um, going at it charismatically. But I, I attended virtually any church imaginable. Um, I had a, this, this is the hippie era, okay? If, if I don't know how old most of the audience here is, but I was living in California. This is the late 60s and, you know, it's hate and Ashbury and hippies and so on and so forth. The... There was a girl behind me by the name of Lark who was getting into Buddhism. She knew I was exploring religions and spiritual life. So she invited me over one evening for some meditation. And I had never done this before. She had this dark room. Now, again, it's the 60s. So she had this black strobe light going on and these, you know, these psychedelic pictures reacting to the light and this very strong incense burning. And then she squishes me into the lotus posture. And, you know, there was this promise of transcendental glory, so to speak. So it didn't take long before the incense was causing nausea. My knees were just screaming, screaming in pain. And probably 10, 15 minutes in, I was just so ultimately miserable. I couldn't believe it. So I, I said, Lark, I got to get out of here. So I just stood up and left with the conclusion in my mind that Eastern spirituality wasn't, wasn't going to be an option for me. Uh, so anyway, I ended up converting to Mormonism when I was 19, served a mission in Brazil, got into um, 
uh, institute leadership on the campus I was in. I was recruited recruited into CES, served as an institute of religion director at Auburn University and the University of Georgia for about 10 years. And then went, uh, I, I was one of the few people in the church qualified to serve as a military chaplain due to education. So in any case, I became a military chaplain, served in that capacity for 21 years. And I retired from that in 2005, served as a hospice chaplain for eight years. And lately, you know, for the past 15 years or more, have been teaching meditation and spiritual growth practices. Now, the transformation for me was in 1999, I was injured back, neck shoulder and it just um, the injury the full extent of the injury didn't manifest itself until the next year because of the separation I wasn't aware of things that had happened in my spine uh, injuries in my spine and pretty soon I, I just had a cascade of symptoms that created unrelenting pain and dizziness and you know, it triggers the fight-flight response. You go into panic, and then you your nervous system gets burned out with stress and panic. You go into depression, and pretty soon my life was, I, I just, it was just miserable. And so, you know, I tried the typical stuff that I was used to, fasting, praying, uh, attending, you know, going to the temple more, paying more, serving more. Uh, blessings. Everybody blessed me. Everybody blessed me. Uh, bishop, stake president, general authority, uh, my son. And with each blessing, I just got worse and worse and worse. And so my go-to spiritual disciplines and practices and beliefs suddenly completely collapsed and failed me. And so as a last-ditch effort, I I had the book called uh, Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn on my bookshelf. I bought it 11 years earlier. It was his uh, stress and pain management program that he developed at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And so I just felt this was it. This was my last shot at stability and relief and healing. So his program was was based on mindfulness meditation, mindful hatha yoga, and a technique called body scan. And I started doing that faithfully three times a day. Surprisingly, my symptoms would relent during my practice. The second I stopped the practice, all of the, you know, the pain and the stress and so forth would immediately consume me. And, and, so there was just one day when I said to myself, holy smokes, if I can sit in meditation for 20 or 30 minutes and be symptom-free, why can't I have one minute afterwards? And pretty soon I had one minute afterwards and then five minute at, minutes afterwards and then an hour afterwards. And that just developed over maybe the course of a year to the point where I was symptom-free maybe 80% of the time. Um, it was about that time that the doctors figured out what had happened. I had these all these injuries to my spine and neck, and that's what was causing the symptoms. And all of a sudden, things began to make sense. And and uh, 
Well, then the second thing that happened was I suddenly noticed when I read scriptures, I'm seeing things I had never seen before. I'm suddenly becoming aware of, of spiritual presence in me and around me. And my entire spiritual life, the way I saw things, experienced things, processed things, understood things, began to transform and change. And that's when I realized, whoa, this meditation discipline is not just about relaxation and stress and pain management. This is There's something about this that is a spiritual path, spiritual discipline. So that's when I began my in-depth study of meditative disciplines, philosophies, practices. I was extremely fortunate to um, be able to interact with Deepak Chopra. Um, I attended, uh, I learned his method. I switched from the Buddhist mindfulness form of meditation as explained by Kabat-Zinn and realized that yoga meditation was really what resonated with me. So I, I learned to meditate from Deepak Chopra. Um, I was so excited about the development what I was learning, I decided I wanted to be one of his instructors. So I began training with him and he was just so kind and helpful in helping me refine my meditation practice and making it very fruitful. Um, for a variety of reasons, I had a break there. He actually left the Chopra Center, went on to do other things. And so I went out on my own and started teaching meditation, got certifications from other groups just to have a broader base in the philosophy and practices. And then in 2006, I began to interact with a man named Roy Eugene Davis, who at the time was the last living direct guru disciple of the famous Yogananda, the Indian guru who came to America in 1920, representing the Kriya yoga tradition. So um, I ended up becoming a disciple of Roy Davis. I ended up being initiated into the Kriya Yoga tradition and then ordained to be a representative of that tradition. And, and you know, this is a man who, who started meditation in 1948. By the time I met him, he'd been meditating for over 60 years. Tremendous depth of realization and understand spiritual understanding. So I was his friend, disciple for the last 13 years of his life. He passed away in April of 2019. And, and then the upshot of all of this was I suddenly, through the yoga tradition, awakened to what I believe to be is a true understanding of who and what Jesus was. Um, what Jesus' mission and message and mediation is all about. And so all of a sudden, uh, Jesus became uh, a core figure in my life. Not that he hadn't been before, but he, he, he was a doctrinal Jesus. He was a church teaching Jesus. And the Jesus I'm talking about now is, a, is an alive Jesus. And so oddly, through the yoga tradition, I find myself in kind of a uh, awakened understanding of who and what he was about, what his message was about and so forth. I love all that. And, and we're going to get into Jesus um, 
as we get maybe into some kind of halfway through the conversation, I want to pick up and talk about that. I want to start with meditation. I, I haven't meditated a lot, but I have meditated enough to know that there is value in it. And I have been around a lot of wisdom teachers and all of them to a T point to meditation as the secret. Um, the secret, and, and, and I think there's still members of this audience who will perceive meditation as woo-woo, and it's not at all. And, and I want you maybe to speak for a moment about what you think and, and what you think is going on when people meditate. What, what is that giving us access to? What is it accomplishing that allows us now to change our awareness, to be present, to be able to examine our ego, to, start, to slow down or stop mind chatter? I mean, there's so many things I want to kind of hit after we talk about meditation that are, I think, the initial gains from it. Um, but let's start off with meditation. What, what do you think is going on there that it opens doors um, that were once locked uh, away to our awareness? Sure. Fabulous question. Now, let's recognize that there are many different forms of meditation, philosophies about meditation, practices of, of meditation. And sadly, it, it can be a confusing area. So people sense there's some value in it, and then they will try one form or another or one form or another under a particular sort of philosophy, and it might or might not work for them. They might or might not figure out what the, the deepest purpose of it is. So awakening you know, for me, is a spiritual issue. It, it is uh, awakening is about perceiving, experiencing, and coming to a direct knowledge of what might one might call the deeper reality. And meditation, which I define as the deepest form of prayer, is the most effective practice for realizing this deeper reality. Now, I'm going to use the word realize quite a bit. And when I use the word realize, what I mean is a direct experience and knowledge of something. Both of those things are present. So I'm a proponent of what's called the perennial philosophy. And uh, somebody, I think it was maybe Spinoza back in the 16 or 1700s, whenever he lived, uh, coined this term and it very, became very popular in the middle 1900s, popularized by Aldous Huxley. But the, there was a recognition that from the beginning of, of time and, and spiritual understanding, there was this three-point philosophy called the perennial philosophy that was present literally in all spiritual traditions. And they are, number one, there is an infinite, changeless reality beneath the, beneath the world of form and change. So we live in a world of form and change. We identify with the world of form and change. And somewhere deep, deep in the past, somebody realized, wait a minute, beneath this, and maybe it's even the source of this world of form and change, there is an infinite, changeless reality. The second uh, understanding that came out of this was that that same reality is at the core of every human being. It's actually at the core of every manifest thing, but the human being is special in the sense that it can realize that, that deeper reality. So not only is there a deeper reality, it's at the core of who we are. And then the third point in the perennial philosophy is the purpose of life 
the purpose of our lives is to discover this deeper reality and then to make it real in our lives, integrate it with the world of form and change. So, um, for me, again, the most powerful revelations of the perennial philosophy for me are in the yoga tradition and in Jesus properly, properly understood. So, um, from, from the yoga tradition, there is, uh, if, if you go into one of the classic yoga texts called the Yoga Sutras, I'm just going to highlight three items. Number one is the opening statement that yoga, yoga defined as the realization of this deeper reality. You can call it a, a state of God union, assuming you know, we're going to use the term God now to refer to this deeper reality. Uh, but that yoga, yoga is a state of being in which we realize, we have per direct experience and knowledge of this deeper reality. We become one with that. And it states that yoga, this state, is realized when the mind becomes still. Now, the mind and the function of the mind is where our sense of self resides it's it's what i'm going to call ego headquarters <laughs> and after stating that that is what this is all about and yoga actually refers to that ultimate state of oneness consciousness whatever non-dual reality however people want to define it um it's also in the yoga literature the path the actions, the practices that lead to that realization. So it refers to both of those, the path and the goal. Um, the teaching then goes into what it calls the obstacles to this realization. In Sanskrit, they're called the klesha, the klesha, and, and there's five. The first one in Sanskrit is avidya. I'm not going to do a lot of Sanskrit here, but I just, that word has such deep meaning for me. And if you think of the word avidya, you see the word vid. Vid in Sanskrit means knowledge. It also means seeing. And in any scriptures you read, the seeing and knowing are equivalent. They're the same thing. If you're seeing things clearly, knowing things clearly, it's the same thing. We get the word video from avidya. And an A at the beginning of a Sanskrit word is a negation. So the first obstacle to realizing this deeper truth and deeper reality um, is the fact that through the incarnation, through becoming human, incarnated beings in a world of name and form, we have become ignorant of our true nature. This is equivalent to the fall in Christianity. So we our true nature has been veiled. We no longer are aware of our true nature and the true nature of reality itself. Well, what does a person do if they're suddenly ignorant of who and what they truly are? We're interacting in a world, we gotta come up with some foundation, some base for interacting with life around us. So according to this teaching, because we are ignorant of our true nature, we have to have some kind of nature, so we create we form up a sense of self based on our experience. Well, what's our experience? Our experience from you know being a baby is I'm a separate little creature. The world is full of separate things and other people. And this sense of separation creates fear because guess what? Some of these separate people and things 
are helpful and nice and nourishing. And some of these separate people, events, circumstances, and things are harmful. They're threatening. They're damaging. So fear arises and, and which leads to a sense of neediness, a sense of deficiency. So we end up forming our sense of self around these things, separation, fear, neediness, deficiency. And, you know, every human being struggles with that because it's, it's, those are the characteristics of the false sense of self. The next two principles, the next two obstacles, according to the Yoga Sutras, is that leads us into a pattern of attachment and aversion. So to have a sense of control, to have a sense of power, to have a sense of um, not being afraid, we start attaching ourselves to things, again, people, life circumstances, ideas, organizations, that give us a sense of stability, security, power, control, pleasure. Got to toss pleasure in. So we attach ourselves to all of these things that seem to provide that for us. Um, and then conversely, there's this movement, this movement of aversion. So we intentionally attach ourselves to things that provide those blessings of security, power, control, so forth. But then we intentionally begin to avoid the other things that seem threatening. So frankly, if you looked at most human lives, you see that most human beings are a, you know, a revolving set of attachment and aversion patterns, right? We, we, we are driven by these things. And as a result of being driven, we, we don't have a whole lot of free choice. I mean, I mean, not many people have much what we would call agency or ability to consciously choose what's going on. We, human beings, by the time they're 18 or 19 years old, uh, frankly, 95% of the way you perceive things, process and understand things, react to things, uh, these are conditioned patterns. And to the extent that there's conditioned patterns, you, you are not free, you are not conscious. And the scriptures, Eastern and Western, call that state of being sleep. You're asleep. You're sleepwalking right through life. And then the fifth clash or obstacle here is fear. The, the word means fear of death from clinging to life. Now, you know, it's obvious every human being has an inherent fear of physical death. But the fear of death that, we re that really torments us psychologically is the loss of our sense of self. It's ego death. That's what we're really afraid of. So we, we cling to that, even though it's a very limited, burdensome, false sense of self. You know, when Jesus says, uh, come unto me, right? Take my yoke upon you. Uh, it's light and it's easy. What he's really saying is, I want to save you. I want to liberate you from this limited false sense of self that is so burdensome, do you see? It's straight out of the yoga uh, handbook. So these are the obstacles. Well, all of these obstacles are rooted in the primary one, which is ignorance of your true nature. So what is meditation about? And all of this is centered in the mind, the way the mind functions and the way the mind works, right? All your attachments, aversions, fears, sense of separation, fear, this is all stuff that the mind is processing in a certain way. And my true nature 
is buried beneath that. I was reading something from an Indian text today, and it was talking about the state and the language that was used was, we are like, we are like people unknowingly walking back and forth over buried treasure. <laughs> it's, it's down there. We don't know it's there, and we just walk over it. We're so close to it, but we're just not aware of it. So what is meditation about? Meditation is a practice by which we still the body, we still the mind, we still the heart. It's really mind. It's, you know, the thoughts, feelings, all of that is stilled. And again, we're back to the, the primary thing in the Yoga Sutra here, right? We attain this, thought, this state of self and God realization the knowing of the nat true nature of reality of God and of ourselves, when the mind becomes still, right? So this sounds like Psalm 4610, right? Be still and know that I am God. What needs to be still? The mind needs to be still. So meditation is a practice. It's not a practice. It's, you know, it could be many practices, but it's a practice of stilling the mind so a deeper awareness can emerge, it's, it's making space, it's creating space for this deeper, truer understanding of the nature of reality, one's own self, so that can emerge. So you can perceive it, receive it, gain some experience with it. Suddenly realize this, this is who and what God really is. This is, you know, who I, what I am and who I am really. And then there is a, shift there's a transfer of identity a transfer of sense of self from this false you know what Eckhart Tolle would call the ego mind complex sense of self to that which is real and that's you know meditation is that practice and that process that allows this to occur when understood properly and when practiced properly yeah, I love it. You you mentioned a lot of things there, and as I'm I'm sitting here looking at the outline of things I want to ask you, and everything you hit on is in this. So I was kind of smiling as you were talking because it's going to be fun as we kind of go into each of these. Um, my my little thought, and again, I, I don't have a ton of experience with meditation, but what meditation has done for me, and I want to I want to talk next about awareness. But what um, meditation has done for me is it's allowed me to see my ego as something separate from who I am in a sense. And, and um, it allows me to quiet the ego long enough to see other parts of me that are, that are always there, but our ego is so loud and so demanding of our time and energy, our thoughts and awareness that we rarely pay attention to the other pieces of us that are actually more eternal, right? Oh, absolutely. Than, than our ego. And so I want to talk for a moment about awareness. One of the things that I deeply became aware of in the last, let's say, five to seven years is beginning to become aware that I'm aware. And, and what that means for me is that I now almost can take a backseat in a car and watch myself as I'm going through an experience. And when my ego wants to get out of control and react in unhealthy ways, 
I now from the back seat can kind of tap it on the shoulder and say, hey, we're going to do something a little different here. And I wonder if you could talk for a moment about becoming aware and your thoughts on awareness when you begin to awaken, how it looks different and, and what kind of gifts it, it gives to you when that, when that awareness becomes a new tool in your bag. Oh, wow. Um, wonderful reflection and question. So a fabulous practice, spiritual practice, is, is really to just sit quietly and maybe just repeat in your mind, aware of awareness. Most people's awareness is mind-based, thought-based. It's just the movement of, of thought and emotion. And everything in our, most, almost everything in our life around us and in our daily activity reinforces that. So very few people are aware that behind their normal awareness is a deeper state of awareness that can observe that, right? So Buddhists would call that witnessing awareness. You can actually take a step back and literally witness your normal state of awareness, which frankly is reactive, chaotic. Um, Full of shitty behavior. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> I think that word's actually in the Yoga Sutras. <laughs> Good. It belongs there. Um, now, it doesn't take a whole lot of practice to sit down and realize that within myself, there is a me. And if you just pause in some silence, there's the presence of a me, but there's also an I in there. There's a me and an I. So when Eckhart Tolle, if I assume people, you know, if you're not familiar with the power of now and Eckhart Tolle's life experience, you need to be. Uh, but, you know, this was a guy mentally and emotionally burdened with life to the point where he went to commit suicide. And he's in a hotel room contemplating suicide. And he's sitting on an edge of the bed, edge of his bed. And all of a sudden, in his mind, there is this statement that I can't stand myself anymore. I can't live with myself anymore. And he suddenly became captivated with, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Is there one me in here or two me in here? Who's the one that's saying I can't stand this anymore? And he went to sleep reflecting on that. And it's one of the few, I want to emphasize few, one of the few people in the world who had what we would call a spontaneous awakening. He woke up with a complete shift in the way he saw and experienced things. And what happened was this I, this witnessing awareness, became predominant in him. For most of us, it's a process over the course of some time doing meditative sorts of practices. So what, you know, what is this I? I'm very familiar with the me, right? And his, all, of, all of his or her little issues and problems. But what is this I that's in the background, do you see? that somehow seems to help me see things clearly and maybe even bring out the best in me. Do you see, what is that I? So one of the yogic practices teach is called self-inquiry. And self-inquiry is a practice where you, ancient seers, who tried to discover the nature of reality, the nature of God, the nature of themselves, realized soon on that by actively pursuing it with thought, they couldn't find it. It was too elusive. And they realized they had to take a 
a different approach. So rather than positively trying to discover the true nature of things, they realized they could with their minds to some degree determine what they were not, determine what ultimate reality was not. And so they started this self-inquiry, which is actually a process of subtraction. And so, you know, you sit in, in kind of a relaxed contemplative way and you start these questions. And the first question is, who am I? You know, who am I? And then you ask a series of intermediate questions as you repeat it. So am I the body, right? Am I this body? Limited, this bag of skin and bone and fat and, you know, whatever else is in there. Is that me? And it doesn't take a whole lot of reflection to realize that whatever I am, I, I'm not limited by just this physical body. You know, you cut the arm off. I'm still fully here. I'm not diminished unless I have a psychological, you know, I develop a psychological issue related to that and create more limitation, but I'm still here fully. I, I'm obviously not the body. And then you move on, you know, am I my thoughts? Well, we feel that way much of the time. We act that way much of the time, but thoughts are fragments of consciousness. They come and they go. They're, they, they're moving all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, thoughts will stop and thoughts will come and thoughts will go. They're just temporary fluctuations in consciousness. So if, in fact, you are your thinking, there'd be no stable self. And the fact that you can watch and observe thoughts come and go, obviously, I'm something deeper. I'm a state of consciousness and awareness deeper than the movement of thought and emotion. Emotions are, frankly, most of the time produced by thoughts. And so am I my thought? Am I my feelings? Well, no. Okay, so I'm not the body. I'm not thoughts. I'm not emotions and feelings. And you just keep moving on. You're subtracting. Do you see? You're subtracting. Not body, not mind, not emotion. Am I desires, needs, fears, um, possessions? You, you just go through this and you start subtracting, subtracting, subtracting. Now, you would think if you are subtracting some from yourself, you would end up being <laughs> smaller and smaller and smaller and less and less and less. But people who engage in this practice of self-inquiry suddenly realize, wait a minute, I'm taking all these things away, which we would call ego mind identity. I'm subtracting all of these things in which you suddenly realize I'm starting to feel more substance, more depth, more reality, more being within myself. By subtracting, I suddenly realize I'm more than any and all of these things, do you see? Can I just jump in just for a second and just throw a comment in, which is we've all been given a story that we are this thing, this individual separate thing. And we'll get into this more later. Yeah, but, yeah. but the idea is that I think once we're shedding all of these labels about our separateness, we come to an awareness that we are actually part of this giant universe. And, and so I think you're hitting on a great truth, which is, as you point out, people are going like, well, if I'm not this, I'm not that, and I'm not this, I'm not that, then maybe I'm nothing, or maybe I'm something small. And the reality is once you shed all these individual things you're not, you begin to fall into or lean into the idea that you're actually part of something really big and connected. Um, and magical and not like in a, in a supernatural sense, but magical in like the beauty of, of this universe starting in one spot and continually expanding and us being a piece of that universe. Oh, yeah. See, all of these, th these objects that just seem to dominate our lives are literally like an umbrella blotting out the sun. Uh, they're a little of nothing. 
that are masquerading as the as reality. Your ego is masquerading as your core nature. It is. It's just a. It's a. Uh, it's just a collection of all kinds of fragments that we've made a story of. Eckhart Tolle calls it the story of me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do. We create a story of me. We create a story of others, and then we interact with other people in these stories, and not within the the you know the core nature of each person. So, uh, yeah. So what you discover when, when you get to the bottom of this is you discover that I. Now I'm going to say something here that you know might or might not be understood, but who or what? is the I, you're, you're, you're feeling, you're sensing, you're experiencing the me and the I, who or what is the I? That I is God in you. Yeah. And when you realize that, and then you realize that what we're calling God is the totality of life itself of existence, of being, of life, you suddenly realize that my I is one with and in everything. So you go through all of this subtraction, you you think you're moving in the direction of becoming something small or nothing, and then you suddenly realize, no, it's more true that I am everything in the sense of being a part of, being in it being in me. I mean, that's the mystical realization, right? Words can't describe it. Uh, but that is the I in you. Now, the problem is you start to realize that we instinctively mix it inappropriately with the me and we bastardize it and diminish it. But um, there is a point of what I would call full self and God realization where the non-dual reality is unveiled. Now, non-dual is a word that gets kicked around a lot, but um, what happened was I love the language of oneness. I use it all the time. It, it was the language of Jesus. Jesus used the language of oneness. But practically, the word one means not two, and I think we're Eastern traditions, most Eastern traditions, my yoga tradition doesn't do this, but most Eastern traditions move into pure oneness, and there's a loss of individuality, Right. So, um, you know, nirvana means extinction. So the whole thing in Buddhism is you as an individual become extinct. You merge, you become one with God, but you as an individual are lost. And um, it's not, there's a truth there. It's not fearful if you identify yourself with God, with the ultimate reality, but uh, it's extremely fearful to the, the ego I individual. Um we needed the word non-dual because non-dual means not one, not two. And it, it emphasizes the truth that I think is in the mystical teachings of Jesus. That's not in many of the Eastern mystical tradition traditions, that there is a point where universality and individuality, where the personal and the individual are true at the same point, they're mutually exclusive, but the deepest spiritual understanding is that I can be with fully with and in God, which means I'm connected to literally everything in existence and being, but I'm still a person. I'm still an individual. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. That's not um, 
No, no, I, I, no, not at all. And um, it reminds me of a quote by Eckhart Tolle, which is, you are the universe expressing itself as a human for a little while. And it kind of captures that idea that you are, you are having an individual experience. Nobody else is experiencing the world like you are. No other life form on earth, no other tree, no other bird, no other, no other bat, no other elephant, no, no other animal or human is experiencing the world like you. And yet you are a, you came out of the world. Um, I was listening to Alan Watts this morning where he, he says, we were taught this story that, that we came into the world. Uh, the, some of the religious narratives give us that. And, and he said, um, he said, like, take a tree, you know, it's an apple tree and it produces apples. And if you're, you know, the apples, it, it's just the natural fruit of the tree or the leaves of the tree. And here's this planet and it peoples, right? Right. Right. And, and that's what the planet does. It peoples. Um, and it does lots of other things too, but we didn't come from nothing. And, and so his, Alan's argument was that there's always been intelligence. We couldn't have just magically developed intelligence. Intelligence always was to some degree, and you can't create something out of nothing. And so we come out of this beautiful planet and we are simply a, another expression of creativity in this planet that so happens to just think in these really cool, unique ways that no other life form on this planet does. But, but it is not unique in that, that intelligence doesn't exist elsewhere or that creativity doesn't exist elsewhere. Um, I want to talk for a moment about being present. One of the, the greatest tools that I've discovered in this side of life is being able in, in this idea of being aware that you're aware is the sudden gift to be present in a moment. And us humans get so lost in the past. We're always worried about what, the, what, what does the past mean for me today? What did these events that happened, good and bad, how are they impacting me right now? And we often get a lot of negative emotion worried about what the past meant or means. And we also are fearful or worried or put so much investment in concern over the future, which hasn't even happened yet. And, and the reality, which is all you ever have is right here, right now. Um, I think it's Alan Watts as well, who said like, this is the creative moment right here. This is the moment where we're all creation is happening. And, and that's hard sometimes for our brain to go like, no, 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 there was things being created yesterday, but yesterday when that thing was being created, it was now. Right. And so now is the only thing you have. Um, talk for a moment about being present and any thoughts that you've got on helping people to be, to be more present in this moment. Because it's the only moment we have is this moment. Every moment we ever had or will have is this moment right now. And this moment is a continual creative activity. Things seem the same to us because of memory and, you know, karma in the yoga tradition, but um, uh, every moment is renewed. I mean, in physics, we know that matter is flickering in and out every millisecond. We're here, we're gone. We're here, we're gone. We're, we're being recreated in each moment. The problem is we're being recreated based on patterns and memory. And so everything, we, it continues to be the same over and over and over. See, there's no consciousness. There's no vitality. There's no life. Um, actually, our life ought to be constant conscious creativity, but it tends not to be. But you're exactly right. The, the movement of mind, 99% of the time, 
our mind moves past and future, back and forth. And it's a movement of fear and desire. So, you know, we have memories of things that were fearful and desirable. We ruminate on those and then we project into the future. We try to minimize the fearful things. We try to maximize the desirable things. And that's the human mind, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. There's no reality at all to that. It's a conceptual reality that's just ultimately not true whatsoever. Spiritual awareness is present moment awareness, period. Spiritual awareness is present moment awareness. So what is it I'm seeking in meditation and deep prayer, right? When Jesus says, go into your closet and shut, shut the door, shut the door to what? right? You're, you're shutting the door to a false sense of self. You're shutting the door to a conceptual sense of reality to find God who's in secret. He's hiding. Why is he hiding? Because he can't be seen in a mind consumed with a conceptual reality of the past and future. He can only be perceived and discerned and communed with in the present moment. In present moment awareness is where the reality of God is revealed. And in the mirror of God's presence, your true nature is revealed. That can only happen in the present moment. So meditation, part of meditation, is about developing a, an ability to maintain your awareness in present moment where the truth is seen and experienced and where creativity can emerge, do you see? I love it. And I, 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 Ken Wilber, I, 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 you know. I, yeah, spiral I, dynamics, yeah. So Ken Wilber, um, he interpreted the, the phrase where Jesus said, uh, and it's not a good a translation in the, in the King James, but in the New King James and other translations, it's narrow is the gate and difficult is the way. And he, def he interprets the narrow way as present moment awareness. Do you see? The narrow way, the straight gate, the difficult, it's, I, I, I have it in my mind the right way. It's a narrow gate in a difficult way. For most human beings, present moment awareness is the narrow gate, you see? It's the difficult way. And it's where you find life, do you see? It's the gateway into to reality and into divine life. And uh, the broad way is exactly what we're talking about. False sense of self and the function of the mind lost in past and future. Yeah, you know, when... When we are being present, we have the most capability to handle any given situation in the healthiest possible way that we are capable of, right? Like when we're present, we, our ego that's worried about, you know, the shame that comes from how the past went and how things went wrong before and the shame or uh, protection that our ego gives us about what outcome we want in the future, all that can sit off to the side as kind of a as another, as another thing outside of ourself, it can, because there's been times where I sit in a situation where I'm truly being present and my ego, it's there. I can sense it. I know what it wants to do. I know what it wants to say, but I can almost pick it up and set it off to the side and it doesn't get to have control of the situation. And I can now respond to people rather than react. Um, I, I think being present really is the key to being our healthiest self. Uh, because you you don't have the baggage 
that comes with the past. You don't have the baggage of the worry about the future. And you simply get to interact with the person in front of you as if this is the, the only and most important moment of your life is right here. Yes. So meditation and related spiritual disciplines <clears throat> create what I call space. Space to be conscious, to see a situation for what it really is, and to be able to react from your core nature, your deepest nature. So in my first Sunstone article, I tell the story um, about my son who, uh, he just, I was in the military at the time and I just had assignments that had us move three times in four years. And so he ended up going to three different high schools and his, you know, losing his friends each time and his life was just turned inside out. And as a 16 year old, he wasn't very happy. And he's just the sweetest, kindest thing. And, and, uh, and, but it just overwhelmed him. And we were um, at home one evening and, and he, he just couldn't help himself. But my wife asked him to do something and he stood up and just was rude and snotty and sarcastic and directed that toward her. And I, I, unthinking, unthinking. I transported over in front of his face in a tenth of a second. The dad playbook was just running through my mind. And I was nose to nose with him, um, you know, very tersely quoting from page 43, paragraph two of the dad playbook. You will never, ever talk to your mother like that again. Now, at 10, at 12, at four, I was pretty intimidating to him. At 16, he was only one inch shorter. We were the same weight. He'd been wrestling and he did not cower. He did not back down. He did not submit. He moved a little closer to me and I am not exaggerating when I say this. I could see his thoughts in his eyes and he was thinking, I think I can take him. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and when he knew that I knew what he was thinking, he could see it in my eyes. Both of us in the same second balled up our right fists. Okay. We were getting ready to punch each other out in our living room, which would have been a relationship disaster. And my, of course my wife would have killed me afterwards because I'm the adult. Right. And what I didn't tell you at the beginning of the story was for six months prior to this, I had been working on creating space and how in the middle of that conflict and chaos, this happened. I'm not exactly sure, except I had been working on this idea of consciousness behind and space. And in one second, a timeless moment opened. And it's like I had all the time in the world to look at the situation, see what was going on, and instead of us punching each other out, I was aware of his goodness, his, for lack of a better expression, divine nature, his, his wholeness, his goodness as a, as a person, his true nature. And I stepped back and I said to him, Gordon, for you to be acting this way, you must be really fearful uh, or afraid of something. You know, I mean, I just, re I could sense it. And he, 
staggered back and fell into a chair and started crying. And I knelt down next to him and we're both crying. And then, you know, what the heck's going on? And he shares from his heart, you know, what he's really feeling. That was a bonding moment for us that has never gone away. He and I have never, ever had conflict, anger, or any kind of dissension between us. We're, we're literally best friends. And it is rooted in that one moment of consciousness, that one moment of present moment conscious experience where I could do exactly what you said, move beyond the ego to the best part of myself, the divine part of myself, the God within me, and respond to that part in him. Um, this is extremely powerful, and it is the most powerful thing that can occur in relationships that's redemptive. Yeah, it reminds me, um, another friend of mine, Thomas McConkie, and I know you're familiar with him. Um, I was at a, a workshop or a retreat that he was present for, and he was the, he was the wisdom teacher for this, for this uh, workshop. And all of us are sitting around, and, and he's helping us learn. I'm learning for the first time meditation. And um, he, he talked about how when we are geared in ego and we're thinking about the past, we tell ourselves inside our brain that every experience we've had, we've done this kind of experience before. Like, oh, I've, I've had this conflict before. I've had these arguments. I've had this kind of work I had to do. I've had these ordeals. I've had these experiences. I've had these accidents. And so when the next experience happens, our ego assigns to it that this is something we've done before, and hence we already have our response ready. So when my, when my daughter breaks a rule, I already have the argument that I've already gone through with her a thousand times. And Thomas was talking about that kind of thing, and he said, he said in my mind, in my mind's eye, I, I look at myself as having a bowl in front of me, and it's, it's full of water. And rather than having to hold that same water I've always held, I can, if I want to, I can just dump that bowl out and I can now enter this new experience doing it differently. Like this is, in fact, this is a new experience in this present moment, even if it's similar to other experiences that have happened. And so when you're present, you have a chance to dump your bowl out and to fill it with something new. Now, this happened to me um, somewhat recently. I, I, I'm a certain kind of father. I'm a very disciplined. I sometimes am a yeller. I, if, if people aren't following rules, I get disrupted inside. And my way of getting control of my disruption, right, my sensations, is to then to lash out against the world and to put everybody else back in order so my world can be orderly again. Right. And I always do these conversations a certain way. And only recently I've had a handful of these occasions one instance is my son, my youngest boy. Him and I rarely ever have um, a good, deep conversation. We're always just kind of like ships passing in the night. And we go downstairs a couple of weeks ago after dinner, and he starts talking to me. <clears throat> he starts talking to me in a way that he had never talked to me before. And I was able, because of, of my spiritual practices, to catch it, like grab onto it and go, Ooh, this is something different. And my, I could see my ego. I could feel my ego wanting to, again, just kind of be dismissive. Um, but instead I set my ego off to the side and I engaged in about an hour and a half long, just fun conversation 
back and forth that I'm, I'm never done before. I'm not that guy. I'm just, I'm short to the point. Let's get the, let's get the work done. Let's move on. And I, in the middle of the conversation, you know, you're having it. It's magical. Like when these moments happen where you are present and you choose to do something different and you are your best, healthiest self, it's, it, and it's not ego-based. It's not like, oh, I'm so awesome. It's like, wow, I, I, am, I am doing something different right now and it feels magical. It feels like the most awesome thing in the world to be present and to be um, dealing with an experience in front of you as a present human being. And, and so I'm simply saying, you're saying that, you know, Thomas had this idea about the bowl. I'm sharing my experience. The idea is that the listeners understand that this is something you can get. And you can access it, not necessarily every moment, but you can access it for more moments this week than last week. And you can access it for even more moments the week after if you continually involve yourself in these kinds of practices. You can show up as your best self in any given moment with, like you said, space to now deal with these interactions as a completely new human being. Like I'm not the human being I was a month ago. And, and we like to tell ourselves a story that, hey, I'm Bill Real and this is who I am and this is what I did and this is what I do. And, and, and the reality is you're just not who you were. All of your cells are dying and being cloned and reborn. The new cells, there are little glitches and anomalies, which is why we age and decay. Um, you and I aren't the same person we were a year ago or 10 years ago. And I sure as hell am not the same person I was two decades ago. Um, when you're present, you get the chance to show up as a new human being in this very moment. And again, back to the idea that the creation is right now. Oh, absolutely. And not only is the ego a bundle of reactive patterns, but our brain loves it. Our brain actually functions this way and likes to function this way. So the brain doesn't seem to work for us as the ego works against us. So one of the things that meditation does is it literally changes the structure of the brain so it can function differently. And so you're not only working on the physical apparatus of the brain, you're also working with the reactive patterns of the, of the ego. And frankly, I define sanctification and purification as this process of of detaching your sense of self from these egoic reactive patterns and reactive brain patterns to the deeper true sense of self. You say you're becoming different, right? Oh, gee, I wasn't who I was 10 years ago. Right. But guess what? You're becoming more authentically who you really are. The, 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 you're becoming really more who you are than a different person, do you see? And um, so meditation helps this process of inner sanctification where there's a transfer of identity, sense of self, experience of self from the animalistic reactive patterns of the brain, from the reactive patterns of the ego to the space of awareness, consciousness, divine nature within. The core, the, the characteristics of the core reality are unity, peacefulness, joyfulness, love, so what you're describing in a new way of interacting with people is you're, you're actually interacting with them with these characteristics, a sense of peace, a sense of connection, a sense of joyfulness, like a, a, an awareness of love. Those are the qualities and characteristics that begin, then begin to imbue our life and relationships. I love it. 
I love it. Um, I want to talk for a moment about mind chatter. We, we always have these stories and thoughts, these narratives that run through our mind. And, and part of meditation, as you point out, is we, if we just sit and just be still and observe our breath and then move on to our thoughts and whatever, um, whatever modality of, of meditation that we're talking about, the idea of just sitting still and observing the world, both outside of ourselves as well as inside ourselves, we, many of us, most of us, and maybe all of us early on in the first half of life have a ton of mind chatter happening and, and you're not even in control of it. Like, again, you talk about, you're not the thinker of your thoughts. That's not who you are. You're not your thoughts, your thoughts. If you just sit still, your thoughts will come and go without any effort on your part. They, they are there and they're not really part of you. They just naturally happen whether you want them there or not. Yeah. They're thinking you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet when you start these kinds of spiritual practices, that mind chatter diminishes significantly. And I don't know, I don't know if anybody is able to get rid of their mind chatter entirely. I know that mine is significantly diminished um, in terms of I can, I can sometimes go into situations and have a very clear head and not have some of that mind chatter going on. Um, talk for a moment about mind chatter and um, any thoughts you have on what people can do and again, meditation is the key, but maybe other things people can do too that help people to start to see it, recognize it, be aware of it, and then find ways to diminish it. Okay. So sadly, the more stressed a person is, the more disturbed they are, the more difficult their lives is, the more unhealthy ego things that dominate their lives, the more mind chatter there is. And um, so the people that need meditation the most from a therapeutic point of view, so to speak, um, for them, the practice is the most difficult because their mind is just so out of control and, and difficult to manage. And they're the ones that typically will try it for a week or two and they give up because when you sit in silence, you start to become more aware of the mind chatter and it's disturbing. It's uh, unnerving. And so, for many people, their initial attempts at meditation uh, are unpleasant and they decide they're going to, you know, go do something else. Um, when I teach meditation, um, I, you know, I, I, I base it on this idea of stilling mind and heart. And, and there are some people who can, through meditation methods of, of concentration and and surrender and so forth can actually begin to have periods, small periods of, of experiencing a still mind and in that stillness having deeper realization. But for most people, even when they're meditating effectively, there's still chatter. And so the way to deal with this um, is to learn how to simply disregard it. It's only a problem if you're attached to it if it grabs you, if it, you know what I'm saying? It has power in the moment. And so, um, you know, I, I call it the Alan Watts method. I mean, one of his ways of, of dealing with this was this disregarding of it. You, you invite it to the back of your mind. Hey, there's a party back there where all the thoughts go and, and you're welcome to go back there and just rumble and grumble. My focus is in the front, right? 
I'm a yogi, so my focus is in the spiritual eye in the front. If there's thoughts grumbling around, they're, they're gently invited to the back to do whatever they want. I just don't consider them as very important at the moment. Do you see? You can be at a party with 100 people. It can be just as crazy noisy as can be. If you get into a very interesting conversation with an individual, suddenly the only thing you're aware of is your interaction and the joyfulness of that interaction or the interesting nature of that interaction with that person. And there's a cacophony of noise around you. Now, somebody might scream real loud or drop something and it'll, you see, direct your attention back to the noise. That, In this analogy, that would be a powerful, emotionally charged thought, right? It'll pull you out. But the idea is I can commune with God even though there's this surrounding chatter, if I'm detached from it, you see, if I'm disregarding it, not giving it any importance. So, you know, chatter doesn't have to be an obstacle. If you can put your attention where you want it, become engaged in that communion, so to speak, that engrossing conversation or communion, and just let it chatter without feeling the need to resist it, to fight it. If you're in a state of resistance or fighting, you, you cannot slip into a meditative state. So, some people can experience a, a, a stilling of thoughts, a greatly reduced movement of thought. Glory, hallelujah. For those that have more trouble with that, I try to teach them to just simply invite them to the back and disregard them as you put your attention elsewhere, right? I love it. I love it. So I want to move on to a little bit of like a middle section here. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the universe, evolution, myth, and then I want to have those set up the conversation with uh, Jesus and your sure. thoughts on him sure. as a yogi. And um, let me start by saying this, that this is a double-edged sword, right? Our ego is the problem. And this, these kinds of spiritual practices help us to become aware that our ego is this thing and that it has control of us and it doesn't need to, and we can operate outside of it. And, and yet it is this development of consciousness and ego that allows you and me to be human beings who can even have a conscious conversation about ego and meditation, right? Like dogs aren't talking about meditation and cats aren't doing that. And nobody else is in doing workshops and other than human beings. So part of the problem is actually the gift that gives us the chance to have these articulate conversations about what, uh, ego is and to begin to deal with it and, and to um, to think about it and to be aware of it and to dive into it. I, I don't know necessarily where I'm going and other than to say like consciousness, whatever human consciousness is, it is unique. And to the best of our understanding, other animal life do, don't have this kind of consciousness. Um, and yet it's this consciousness that gave us all of these shadows and mechanisms and trauma and unhealthiness and the ways in which we react and respond to people because we have language, we have gossip, because we have language, we, we were able to create myths. Your thoughts on consciousness, human consciousness, um, coming out of evolution, we used to be something other than human. And, and here we are now, these these the species that can build buildings and can create societies and we've done language and we like the creativity of humans is so incredible. 
Um, and it also gave us these problems of ego and shadow and unhealthy mechanisms and imposing trauma through these new and these new technologies such as language. Um, your thought of what it, you know, as your brain goes back to wrestle with whatever we were 200,000 years ago or 6 million years ago to today and the good and bad that comes with that and consciousness, maybe anything that arises as I'm, as I'm kind of rambling there. Okay. Um, well, you've just described the, the blessings and the curses of the human brain and nervous system and consciousness. Uh, what evolved in the human being is a brain and a nervous system that is dual functioned. Um, in, in some ways it was created to, to um, perceive, process and interact with the material world or the world of form. And so our senses do that. Our senses take our awareness and it moves it out into the world of form. And then we experience and learn and process and, and decide how we're gonna interact with this world of form. The, the problem is that's not the only function of the human brain and nervous system. Um, the human brain and nervous system also has the capability of perceiving, receiving, processing, and knowing spiritual reality. It has that capability. But that capability is only developed when we don't allow our attention and awareness to flow out into the world of form, but we turn it around and redirect it within. That energy, that intelligence, that awareness is redirected within. And then through, you know, meditation develops the brain and the nervous system, the function of it in, an, within a new way, or it, it increases the ability that's inherent to perceive, interact with the deeper reality. So the human brain and nervous system has that dual function. We just use it the outward way. It's necessary to live in this world, but it's so limited and restricted when it comes to experiencing uh, reality itself. So, yeah, um, we are different creatures because the flesh discern what I'm calling spiritual formless. Now, this scares people. I hate to use the word formless, but ultimate reality is formless reality, okay? That scares the hell out of people because our sense of self is form-based, physical form, mind form, emotional form. So when you start talking about formless reality, it freaks people out because you start feeling like you're being threatened with extinction, do you see? But your, soul, your, your spiritual nature itself is formless. The greatest awakening that I've, well, that's probably maybe not true. One of the greatest awakenings that I've had is the moment I suddenly experienced myself in my true nature as formless reality. The mind can't get this because the ego mind is completely based on form. But when you realize that your nature, true nature, is formless, there's no threat, do you see? There's no fear of death, threat of death. Um, you, you can't be extinguished, you can't be destroyed. Um, as long as you're identified with, with ego, then there's the fear of extinction. So, 
people want to define, put the, the concept of spiritual into form. What spiritual really means is formless reality, which is out. It is from that formless reality that the material universe manifests. It is the deeper reality. It is this deeper reality of the perennial philosophy, and it is the deepest part of your nature, if that makes sense. Am I, am I getting there or have I gone off yeah. straight? No, 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 no. I, I, I think it's such a, I think you did great. And I think it's such a hard concept to wrestle with, which is, you know, we humans are talking about, you know, these spiritual practices meant to wake us up to our true selves. And yet it is this evolution into being a human being that even allows us to engage that process. You know, whatever, whatever dogs are doing, if anything they're doing is meditative, they certainly aren't consciously right. wrestling with it in their mind about the fact that they're meditating. If a dog's laying there and he's, and he's doing something, he certainly doesn't know consciously he's doing it. And yet here we humans have this barrier that we're trying to work through. And yet it's by being human that we're able, even able to consciously be aware that there's a barrier and work through it. it it's such a strange thing. Um, Just you mentioned sure. animals. Um, animals unconsciously live much of their life in present moment awareness. They're not conscious of it, but it's there. One of the reasons animals are therapeutic is because if you hold a dog or a cat or my wife holds chickens and rabbits and, you know, it's therapy because, and Tolly points this out, animals much of the time, unless they're being threatened or they have a physical need, they live in present moment awareness. And you can hold an animal and connect with present moment awareness. That's why it's therapeutic. But it's not conscious conscious present moment awareness matters do you see yeah and yeah but but the conversation is fun to engage and only by having consciousness like humans do right can we engage these concepts about these barriers that we have right. it's just it's this i don't know it's just a fun place to kind of it's kind of a fun sandbox to kind of i guess riff on for a little moment yeah. um one more question and then i want to talk about jesus which is I read the book Sapiens by Yuval Harari. By the way, I've read the book Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. I've, um, I'm familiar with Alan Watts, as we've talked about. I'm familiar with some of the other spiritual teachers. And so these messages are crucial. As you and I are pointing out the, the other wisdom teachers that are in this field, it, it, the listeners, I would just suggest these are books. These are wisdom teachers that if you can go find, Alan Watts has got a hundred videos on YouTube. Um, and, and they're well done. Some of them, the, the well, Alan Watts messages are incredible, but some of these videos are also assigned to, uh, there's a sketch artist that draws during some of them. There are certain ones that put quotes up on the screen while he's talking. There, there's such great access to resources, to waking up to this side of life. Having read Sapiens by Yuval Harari. Are you familiar with the book, by the way? I'm not. Um, he, it's Yuval Harari is essentially writes the book to try to essentially go back in time and explain why we humans are the way we are today. And one of the facets of his book is this idea that whatever we were a billion years ago, we certainly didn't have language. We certainly didn't have consciousness as we understand it today. And we existed in these small groups that were cohesive because we were intimate with each other. We knew each other well enough. Um, and, and maybe just like the other primates, maybe we did some grooming to each other. And so we were able to have this trust and um, collaboration in really small groups based on our intimacy with each other as well as our taking care of each other. 
But the bigger tribes kill the smaller tribes. And so evolution deems that for the human race to have survived, it had to continually work and collaborate in larger and larger groups. It's one of the concepts that leads to our, our inventing the technology of language. And as we create language, we now have the ability to gossip. And gossip is a binding mechanism that works with a larger group of people. So I may not know Phil McLemore, but I know Judy and Judy knows Phil McLemore. So now Judy can tell me good and bad about Phil. And now I know whether Phil can be trusted on the hunt or be trusted to go gather, or if he's going to make mistakes and he needs to stay back. And so it allows us to work together cohesively and to collaborate and to know each other's gifts and flaws in larger groups. At some point though, another technology is needed to make a group even bigger so that it can kill out the smaller group and it can survive. And that, that technology is myth. And myth allows millions of people, right? I can be on a battlefield with somebody wearing the same uniform and I don't have a clue about them. And I don't even know anybody who has a clue about them, but I know I can trust them. And I know they're on my side. Um, the fact that they're wearing a, a uniform tells me a story about their preparedness and their qualifications and the fact that I can fight side by side with them and know that I can trust my life in their hands. And so myth becomes this binding mechanism for human beings in significantly large groups. And those are the groups that survive because they utilized it. At the same time, while myth is important because it does bind us and it's allowed the human race to survive, because we humans aren't going to do very well in a safari by ourselves or even in groups of two or three with a pack of wolves or hyenas or lions and tigers or bears. And yet myth and labels and narratives also create arbitrary constructs that create division and separateness, as well as an expectation of what it means to show up as a human. And hence it creates expectations which lead to shame. It leads to us compromising ourselves in order to fit in. And it also creates barriers to us waking up to our true selves because the myth tells us what it means to be human and it tells us where all the answers are. And hence, it keeps us from even knowing naturally that we can dive into these kinds of practices and, and wake up to our true self. Your thoughts on myth and your thoughts on uh, its, maybe its barriers as well as its importance, any, any thoughts that you've got in that area? Okay, so, you know, anything that functions in a dualistic perspective has blessing and curse. It's, it's just the way things are. And, you know, part of seeking goodness is to try to accentuate the benefits of myth and other forms of human expression and to minimize the, the curses of those things. Human beings, sadly, just have a capability of of uh, taking things that are potentially good and using it for division and destruction. Um, but, you know, there's, the, there's a natural um, mythology that emerges among human beings that binds in one case, separates in other cases. For me, the, the, the core myths are the spiritual myths, which are vehicles for revealing deeper reality, right? The, the great myths are ways for human consciousness to evolve and create um, stories, mythical stories that, if you understand them, reveal the deeper reality, the nature of the deeper reality and of yourself. So those are myths that are important, uh, that are transformative, that matter, that we need to cherish. 
um, part of the problem of modern day religion, and this happened in Christianity, is we began to literalize our mythology. And I'm telling you, every time you literalize a mythical revelation, you reverse it. You turn it completely upside down, and it it undermines the thing of the myth. So I'll give you, I'll give you. I don't know if I've done enough on myth before I shift here, but but the virgin birth of Jesus is Christian mythology. Okay, and we have interpreted that as this person Jesus uh, is absolutely different and special and unique, and uh, this virgin birth designates that. And so we teach the virgin birth in a way that actually separates us. It puts us into a different class of being than Jesus, and and the class that it puts us in is less than. So now it reinforces an egoic point of view that we're deficient, defective, have problems, we're sinful, so on and so forth. The myth of the virgin birth, literalized, creates division and depression on the human side as it exalts Jesus, do you see? The truth, the truth of the virgin birth myth is that our core nature, our true nature was virgin born. It was the interaction of God with Mary, the material, right? The material manifest world. That, that's what our soul is. It's the union of the divine and the, uh, the human, so to speak. The divine and the manifest, right? The formless and the form. All of us, our core nature was virgin born. It's pure, it's holy, it's within each of us. That myth was intended to not separate us from Jesus and God, but to put us in the same class. Now, we're not living in the realization of it, but that's what his mission and message is about, is, is to reveal the good news that you are as divine and holy as I am. You are one with and in God as I am. You need to awaken to that. You need to realize that. That's, that was the true purpose of that myth. You literalize it, you destroy it. Do you see? We come to it honestly, though, right? Like the authorities of these myths, right? We were born and we're born into a system and there are authorities in that system and the authorities of that system say our interpretations are the true interpretations. And, and so we don't even know, we don't even, we don't even recognize until we start to wake up that, that maybe there are other interpretations and maybe there are other ways and maybe the experts don't know all the stuff they think they know and maybe there are other approaches that are more truthful than the ones the authorities are giving us. Like we do come to it honestly and, and often the authorities of these myths actually stand as barriers to the path, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Um, and they, I don't know, it's, it's, it's the... You know, Western civilization brought us so many wonderful things. But, you know, when you apply the scientific method to mythology, you destroy it. Absolutely destroy it. Because it is a revelation of the deeper reality. It, it's, a, it's the deeper, more substantive reality that is underneath scientific truth. It, it, it's scientific truth comes out of that. So when we make scientific truth the foundation, then and we destroy the mythology, then we lose our connection to 
to the deeper reality and that's and then, then the symbols and the the uh the symbols and the mythical stories and insights are perverted and lost and reversed they're literally reversed in meaning yeah the experience I, uh, of Gethsemane isn't just about Jesus. The experience of crucifixion isn't just about Jesus. The experience of resurrection isn't just about Jesus. It's us. It's our inner, it, it's the process of our inner awakening to the oneness that Jesus lived in with and in God. Um, so all of this Christian mythology um, or even historical events that pre that reveal a mythology sometimes historical events can be mythological but yet historical at the same time it's where history and and mythology merge right the, the crucifixion is such the resurrection is such um and oh, i lost my train of thought i'm sorry the mythology unites us with jesus with god literalized mythology separates us right yeah yeah and and um maybe to recognize as i've as i've read joseph campbell in the power of myth huge book in terms of influence on me because i then joseph campbell taught me to look at the story from as as mythology and and while whether historical or not, to set that aside and to to recognize the hero's journey is each of us. Each of us are constantly battling things. Sometimes we're losing, and now we go on the hero's journey, and we have a chance to overcome things. And, and as you're pointing out, this idea of Christ, there's the scripture in Second Corinthians thirteen five, or do you not realize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Like God is in us. We we are. Uh, and I know this sounds blasphemous. We are God. Um, we are an outgrowth of the intelligence that is. And, and so these scriptures, as you're pointing out, if we look at them with new eyes, if we see through a glass less darkly, and we never see through a glass clearly, right? We're always seeing more darkly or less darkly. Uh, we can come to an understanding that what some of what the scriptures are trying to teach us in whatever tradition. And by the way, it was super beneficial for me to read the Bhagavad Gita, um, because in reading that, I knew it was fiction. I, you know, that talking deer, I knew was fiction. Meanwhile, my talking donkey, I thought was real, right? And, <laughs> and by being allowed, by being permitted inside my brain to see the talking deer as fiction, I, I could see myself in the story. It was much easier to make the story about me having a human experience rather than this specific person or creature having its own experience separate from me. And so, as you're pointing out, the scriptures are often there to point us to seeing these greater truths and that God is in us in like, a, like some real way that's different than the interpretations that often religions give us about God being in us. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's, let's now hit on Jesus. So, we've talked about myth. We've talked about literalizing. Um, I, you know, I know you're not me, so I'll just, I'll state my two cents, and then I want you to come in and kind of share yours. Um, I'm, I'm an atheist today, but I also like calling myself a mystic, because I, I find that there is mystery still in the universe, and there is still intelligence that I don't fully understand. And engaging Jesus, I actually quite enjoy. 
Um, in fact, one of the podcasts that I do and haven't picked up for a little while, but I do, is a podcast called The Mythical Jesus. Um, and my goal in that podcast is to set historicity aside and to try and look at Jesus from a human development standpoint and as a wisdom teacher and as one who's trying to help us wake up. And I find, I find that when I let the religious narratives go, the interpretations I was told to take go, and I just read the scriptures for what they are with, no, with as little or no bias or trying to be as objective as I can and just read the story at face value, throwing out everything that someone else told me I was supposed to take from the story. I find the stories are so much deeper and richer and full of beauty than I ever got in a million hours of Sunday school. Um, Jesus is a profound wisdom teacher. And I'm curious, you know, I know that you've written uh, papers on Jesus as a yogi. Um, your thoughts on the Christ figure, regardless of historicity, what, what, what he can be utilized to teach us and give us and how we can look at him differently. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so Cynthia Bourgeau has a book called The Wisdom Jesus, and she makes the case that Jesus really fits the model of the wisdom teacher. And uh, that's absolutely true. I would take it a step beyond that, and I would say what makes Jesus ultimately special and unique is he was not only a teacher and revealer of wisdom, he's also a mediator of that wisdom there is a there is a for lack of a better word a, a power that comes from his absolute realization in god there there is a power of that that um he can effect in us so wisdom teacher yes wisdom mediator also you wrote an article called the yoga of christ and I'm, and I'm, what, what do you mean by that? Like when you say like, not only is he a wisdom teacher, he's a wisdom, you said mediator, right? What do you so, mean by that? So as I mentioned earlier, for me, the most powerful vehicles for revealing the perennial philosophy are the yoga tradition and Jesus, the big revelation that took place in me that caused me to write that article, the yoga of Christ was when I realized that what Jesus was uh, teaching, the, the, the core of his teaching fit almost completely harmoniously with the yoga perspective in teaching and practice. And so in that article, uh, in two of the major yoga scriptures, the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita, the spiritual path is summarized in the twofold formula of God communion, which is meditation, where there's this inner purification and inner transformation and, and uh, reestablishing of our sense of self in our God nature, and the practice of uh, what we've, we have a good word in English, in, in Sanskrit it means not colored, but we translate it as non-attachment. But it's the, the conscious practice of realizing that your sense of self is attached to temporal things, which is what causes fear. And so the practice of non-attachment, which Jesus taught extensively, and I've demonstrated in that article, is in addition to meditation, you have a conscious practice of detaching your sense of self from things that are 
temporary, things that pass, things that aren't really you. Um, frankly, your, your ego sense of self is an object. It's an object. If you can observe it, it's not you. If you can observe it, it's an object. You can observe your thoughts and your feelings and your desires and your fears and your needs. Those are all objects in consciousness. We craft them into being a subject. It masquerades as a subject, which is an, which is an object. The Christ in you, right, is Paul. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I mean, that scares people a lot because, oh, no, where did I go, right? Well, the Christ in you is who you really are. It's the awakening to your true nature. You don't lose anything. You gain everything. But that's the subject. We're trying to get to the subject of our experience, not be an object masquerading as the subject, if that makes sense. The ego is an object masquerading as a subject. So what Jesus brings to us as he draws us into oneness in the Father is a purity of heart where we can see and know God. Purity meaning what? It's not contaminated with the you know, past and future, fear and desire, ego nonsense, right? When we are purified of that, we see God. We see God as he is, and we see God within ourselves. Um, um, before we get too far, I don't want to forget, I wanted to deal with this self-identification on your part as being an atheist. Um, when you look at the traditional way God is described as kind of this person one way or another up there, allowing all this crazy nonsense to happen on this earth, it's hard not to reject that description as being God. But when you suddenly realize that God is consciousness, existence, being itself, from which this world manifests, that is God. And that seems like a kind of philosophical, ethereal nonsense to many people. That's reality. That's what I'm saying. The big mystery here is that formless reality is ultimate reality, is the foundational reality. So God being formless reality is not insubstantial at all. It is the substance. And um, something that I'm going to mention here, I don't teach it very often because it's, it's hard for people to understand. It's one of the mysteries. I mean, you know, the thing about speaking a mystery is... Uh, if, if you can see it, you get it. If you can't see it, it's foolishness, right? <laughs> so it, it, it's veiled even when clearly spoken if you don't have eyes to see. But, but and, I, and I'm going to tie this back into Jesus and, and resurrection. We need God. I take, I'm sorry, I reversed that. God needs us as much as we need God. Pause for one second. Why is that? Why does God need us? Because God is existence being itself. And because there is a fullness of life that is experienced when the formless reality interacts with form, he needs us, okay? In other words, God manifests in and through us personal beings of form. He needs us for the personal dimension to be expressed and realized. But the personal dimension just in and of itself can go bad and is fairly meaningless without the impersonal. We don't have a good word for this. Universal might be better. God can't be a person if he's existence and being itself. A person is a limited form of some sort, right? So God, in essence, is impersonal, which 
makes people freak out. Oh, does it mean he doesn't love me? He's not compassionate, he's, right? No, impersonal means unbounded, unbounded and universal. The universal has manifested itself in us, Jesus being the ultimate prototype, right? Fully God, fully man. That's who and what we are and what we're supposed to be consciously. So God manifests in us, through us, the personal dimension is born. We are reborn into our core nature as consciousness, existence, being, formless reality itself. And what has been created is a being demonstrated in Jesus who is fully God, fully human, fully universal, fully personal, right? Unbounded, but individual. That's the paradox. That's the mystery. That's the point of the, that's the, 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 the point of truth at the junction of the cross. Um, so in Christ, we learn f what, we, what we really are. We are both of those. God needed us to manifest the personal dimension consciously. Consciously. We need God to be grounded and rooted in the universal, unbounded, impersonal. That's what a soul is. We are souls. We are fully and completely the universal and the individual. And as a result of that, a fullness of life, a fullness of joy can be experienced. That is resurrection. That is resurrection. Mm. You're, as you say all those things, I feel, like, I feel like I'm walking around the edges of what you said. Um, and, and I hope you understand that. Like, again, like you said, if you, haven't, if you haven't gotten there, if you haven't experienced, if you haven't felt it, seen it, touched it, smelled it with your own eyes, it's really hard for someone who hasn't to have it described to them and to grab hold of it and to understand it. It's, it's, like, uh, it's like the old narrative of, you know, putting a blindfold on and grabbing onto an elephant and trying to figure out what it is you're holding onto. And whatever piece of part you're holding onto, it feels like something else. Sure. And, and I, I love it because it's a tease to all of us to dive deeper into this stuff to understand it. I will say this about Jesus. As we talked earlier about being present and you can show up as your healthier self, as I flip through the pages of the New Testament, I continually see a personage or character who seems to handle situations very present, right? The, the people are antagonizing him. They're instigating him. And yet he shows us how we can show up and disregard the normal pitfalls of human behavior and how we treat others and how we re, uh, react to others and how we put up our defense mechanisms with others and instead engage them in ways that seem to reflect that whatever Christ was, that he was extremely present in some of these moments. He lived in divine consciousness. He lived in present moment awareness. And there are code words in all of his teaching. He uses this expression, waiting and watching, right? What does waiting and watching imply? What does it really mean? It means to, to truly watch, you have to be in present moment awareness. To truly see ultimate reality, you have to be in present moment awareness. So 
you know, what's the key to the second coming? I'm going to argue the second coming, and I don't know why we haven't figured this out yet. For every hundred years, the last 2,000 years, everybody's predicted this is it. He's coming, right? As if it's an external cosmic event. No, it's an internal event where the Christ, not necessarily the person Jesus, but this this Christ consciousness that he that lived in him, that he represented, that he mediates, awakens in us. That's the second coming. It's an internal event. You see, we've reversed. We've the mythology's been destroyed. We've made it into an external event and lost it. What's the key to realizing it? Waiting and watching. Right. Waiting implies present moment awareness. Contemplation means to watch with expectation of discovery. You watch in such a way that ultimate truth is unveiled. It is revealed to you. The word prayer in Aramaic, although it was used to cover the full spectrum of prayer, literally means to, it literally means to create a snare. In other words, you go into a forest, which is your mind, this forest of craziness and thoughts. You clear out a holy sacred space and you lay a snare. That's what that word means at the Aramaic word in prayer, to lay a snare. And then you move back and you sit quietly. And what do you do? You wait patiently, right? For the movement of spirit, the movement of wind. Remember John 3, 8, right? The spiritually reborn are those who who wait to receive the wind. You don't know when it's going to blow. You can't control it. You wait for it patiently, but you watch. You can only watch in present moment awareness. If you're not in present moment awareness, I'm not. if you're lost in your mind, if you're lost in thoughts, literally, a person can walk by you and you don't see it. That's how distracted our consciousness can be. Waiting and watching is a reference to some sort of meditative discipline where we wait, watch, contemplate, present moment awareness, and in that sacred space that we've created, we snare God. You see, we catch him. Now, that's not a perfect image, but we're able to encounter him in that holy space, waiting and watching. You know, Jesus is a wisdom teacher. Jesus is a teacher of inner discipline. Jesus is a teacher of inner awakening. Jesus is a teacher of present moment awareness. That's what that phrase means. And he's, he wants to come, do you see? His intent is to come. That's the second coming. It's within us. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. Um, we've got just a few minutes left, and I, and I don't want to take up more time. Plus, I've got I've to get to work here and, and open up my store. But I do want to – I would be remiss if I didn't at least include these two topics extremely briefly. Um, one is I want to know your thoughts on free will. Um, mm. there, there's this debate. And maybe I'll say this about free will, which is I don't think in any given moment we have free will, but what we can do through spiritual practices is we can give ourselves more capability in the next moment by by sitting present in this one. So my capability may be a certain level right now as I'm being as I'm doing my life and being present, but by continually diving into these things. I, I increase the potential of what my what I can do in the next moment. So that's my thought on free will, but I want to hear yours. And I want to hear your thoughts on death. And here's what I'll say about death, which is I'm scared to death about death. I have thought a bunch about those last three minutes. So the act of dying scares the hell out of me. And I like me and I like I like the life I'm living and I enjoy the fun I'm having and the experiences that are happening. And I am fearful 
that when that last breath takes place, just a few brief moments after, the, the um, electrons in my brain will stop firing, uh, the, neuro, the neurons in my brain will stop firing, and I will go to sleep, never to wake up again. And I don't know how to make peace with that. So let's end with your thoughts on those two topics. And I think we've covered just so much ground. It's just been a beautiful conversation, Phil. And I want to just say thank you for giving us a, a significant piece of your day today. Oh, well, thank you. Um, wow. Two big, big issues here. And I appreciate your honesty in sharing that. Free will. As I mentioned earlier, by age 18, human beings are 95%, if not more, are, uh, they're, we're, we're bundles of conditioned responses. Not much agency at all. Not much conscious decision-making. So it's true that most human beings to a large degree do not have free will or free agency the ability to have freedom i mean i mean in yoga this is called liberation of consciousness right it's only in pure consciousness that we truly have free will the ability to choose right not fettered by conditioned responses um so in yoga, this is freedom from karma, right? Karma or samsara is this right cycle of patterns that you can't seem to break out of. Breaking out of that is what gives you the ability to make choices in the light of pure consciousness. So I do believe in free will, but it's not generally expressed among human beings. It's a, it's a, uh, a blessing. It's a result of awakening into uh, the fullness of consciousness in God then there's free will, right? We might have smatterings of it here and there, you know, moments where we can create enough space to make a conscious choice, but it's not the norm at all for most of human life, but it is possible. So inner spiritual practices should expand your ability, you know, from 2% to 20% to 50% and maybe beyond that, do you see? Uh, on death, um, you mentioned the brain dying. Well, the brain in some ways is a, um, an instrument that processes, that can process consciousness to a certain degree. Formless reality, pure consciousness, pure existence being is exactly that. That is infinite eternal existence. It, it, it moves through the human brain, but the, the loss of the human brain does not do away with infinite consciousness. It just does away with the transmission of that into the human form. It's so interesting that meditation is often described as a process of dying before you die, right? If you heard that expression, you, you learn to die yeah. before you die. So in meditation, what you do is you literally let go of the false sense of self, the experience of self as a mind, as a body, as, a, as emotion, as events moving, right? See, this is the problem of identifying with ourself with only temporal things when the essence of our being is in fact a, a, a one at one with the, the fullness of existence and being. So the only thing that dies is the temporary expression. I'm suggesting the process of resurrection maintains a, an individuality not necessarily individuality as we typically describe it in an egoic sense, but resurrection is a uniquely Christian teaching, Jesus teaching, that again reveals this truth that we are both and we're going to be both. We're going to be, our essence of being 
is infinite pure existence being consciousness but there is also an individual form-based personal expression that doesn't go away either and and that's the good news do you see that's the good news uh nothing about us that is real ultimately real dies it's only the unreal that dies and and listen so many of the joyful fun productive experiences of this life they are not lost they're in consciousness consciousness doesn't forget things all of that's going to be present to us and for us but it's going to be expanded um i don't know if i have time to share um i woke up one morning i was it's when i was and i i used to be terrified by this yogic teaching of of uh, the drop goes back to the ocean you know what i'm saying You've heard this? So we're like drops and the drop goes back into the ocean. I mean, I used to just, I used to hear that in yoga teaching and it used to just scare the crap out of me because, you know, where do I, on the little drop, where do I go? I mean, it feels like extinction, very terrifying. And I woke up one morning and I got caught in some weird netherworld before I had fully become conscious of myself. You know, in, in dreamless sleep, deep sleep, there's no sense of I. Um, we're in, we're kind of in a unbounded state where we're not formed up. And so as I'm waking up, how many seconds, I don't know, it felt timeless, but I was experiencing myself literally as formless, conscious existence being fully present everywhere and anything that's ever existed fully present in me, nothing lost. And I made the mistake of my head moving and I glanced over to my closet and I saw my clothes all lined up and my mind started coming in. My mind was completely silent. I'm perceiving this experience of myself expanded, right? Divine being. I look over to the closet. I see the shirts and my mind starts moving up now, right? Oh, I got to get ready for work. I think I'm going to wear that shirt. I literally watched my ego identity form up piece by piece. It felt like being enshrouded into this little dinky Phil who's got to fix breakfast and brush his teeth and decide what clothes to wear and get to work on time. I mean, the whole thing, I just started laughing because I'm afraid of losing this, this little guy that, you know, seeks for strawberry ice cream and a nice looking shirt and, right? I mean, it was laughable that I thought, I'm worried about losing this. I call him Little Phil. When in fact, the essence of my being is literally the, the, the nature of God as this infinite being in consciousness. Now, what is my soul? Both of those together. Both of those experienced as one non-dual reality, the fullness of life, the personal, the impersonal. Um, nothing's lost. Man, I, all I have, all the only capability I have right here is to say, I hope so. I hope, I hope in that, that nothing is lost, that whatever I am that makes me something part of something bigger and also unique in, in, in this expression of the universe as a human for a little while, I hope that something lasts beyond this life. And I, uh, find that deeply interesting, and that's not a that's not a truth I've arrived at yet. Um, but but as a again, I'll use the labels I use, even though you don't like them. Uh, the the atheist mystic. <laughs> I'm going to keep engaging 
these practices and, and see where I come out. Um, this conversation has just been amazing to me. I think the listeners are going to deeply enjoy uh, us playing in this sandbox of meditation and all that comes out from beginning to change our awareness. And I just want to say thank you for your time. Um, I, don't, I don't take these conversations lightly. This is the funnest thing I know to do uh, in my life today is to talk about these concepts and to talk about the things that help me to be a better human being in the present moment. So I just want to say thank you to you for your time and thank you to you for who you are and your life's work. Oh, this is ultimately joyful for me. And I thank you for letting me play in the sandbox. Yeah, you're welcome, my friend. Um, thank you again. And, and I hope you have a beautiful day. Thank you. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman. 